Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Trainer Talk, a place where negotiation trainers talk shop. My name is Max Bevilacqua, founder and principal at Max Negotiating, a spinoff of the Harvard Negotiation Project. Hi, Max. I'm Gwen Kraus, and I've been training negotiation and leadership workshops for 25 years around the world in multiple industries and worked with several training firms, including Vantage Partners, Action Design, as well as my own training and coaching company, Polaris Professional Development. We are very excited. This is our third episode, and we just want to thank all of our listeners for the terrific feedback you've given us on our interviews with Atia Qureshi and Joe Budman. And today we have our friend and colleague, Shonda Andrews, joining us. Shonda Andrews is, as Gwen mentioned, one of our colleagues based in the UK. She began her career in law, serving as a barrister for many years, and made the transition to doing corporate and public dispute training, which she's going to tell us more about coming ahead. On today's episode, Chanda is going to tell us a story about how she had to personally use everything that she was teaching in the classroom in a difficult moment, getting some difficult feedback, having to negotiate with herself, and having the grace and the humility to use the situation as a learning point in the classroom. Shonda, tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, I'm actually based in the UK, so the London side of what we were talking about. Um, although I know the accent really confuses people <laughs> because that is not a British accent that one is expecting. Would you mind just tweaking that a little bit for our, I guess we're going for an international appeal. <laughs> yeah, well that is, so that is the international school accent. So I went to an international school. I'm actually from Malaysia. And so um, give me long enough in any sort of environment and I will pick up the accent. So I, I spent a bunch of time in, in Paris and I started speaking with a bit of a Parisian accent. So it's just, it's just strange. Um, so I've been on the circuit, as you referred to it, uh, as a trainer, facilitator, coach, consultant for about 12 years. And I had sort of um, done that in line with my legal practice. So I used to be a lawyer up until about seven years ago. Um, in the UK, we call them barristers who are like specialist lawyers. Um, and I gave up my practice, I would say, when my son was about two years old. Uh, when I got to a point where, um, you know, working 70, 80 hours a week was just not conducive to, to a young family. So I quit that, completely focused on the training and development side of things, and then worked like 90 hours a week, which is what you do when you set up your own business, right? Um, so yeah, so excited to be here, Max. Um, the excitement is ours. I also want to just say hi and welcome Gwen to um, who is, I mean, it's so interesting to have three facilitators um, given that we do a co-facilitation model. Um, so this is new and cool. And the words I always hear about Shonda are energy, um, energetic, fun. And I do really believe that we're there for a purpose of, of teaching and, and imparting knowledge and getting people to understand the negotiation model and take it on. And if you are not entertaining, if you're not telling some stories, uh, people aren't gonna stick with you. So I'm really excited to hear Chanda's stories. What a perfect lead-in, Chanda. We we hear you might have a story for us, and we'd love to hear it, pick it apart, marvel at it. Um, whenever whenever you, you <laughs> want to drop it. <laughs> so I wanted to share something with you because I know we had our prep call sort of last week, deciding what kind of stories we're going to share. Mm -hmm. And as a trainer, um, you know, we have those five, ten stories that we have that we know we it's almost like muscle memory right we just sit in a room we know when to pause we know the dramatic um you know ways we'd look at the audience and say could you believe that happened and so i had really thought about you know the piece that we had shared last week was really being genuine and authentic in front of a room and this i feel is something i'm currently grappling with in my own personal journey and so um, the story I'm going to share today is not a story that has been shared anywhere else. I have never used this story in a training room, partly because it's fairly new. It only happened last year, okay. um, just before COVID. And not only that, it is so raw, so painful. I'm not sure if I've really uh, contabulated all of the results of what happened in that moment. Um, 
But really for me, the key, and before I even share the story was how do you stay true to learning um, and growth in the moment yeah. when you are being impacted in terms of your identity? Sure. Right? Um, so, so basically this was a group of senior leaders that I had um, had the pleasure of training once before in the US. Right. Um, and this was the second module in their learning journey. So I had a great rapport with these folks, you know, great banter in the room. And honestly, some of the smartest folks I've ever come across. And so I was teaching the tool called the CPC, and you both are very familiar with that tool, the currently perceived choice tool, or as we would call it, getting into somebody else's shoes. And, you know, my premise for starting with that is always, you know, the most um, impactful, inspirational um, leader, negotiator, influencer, you know, insert as necessary, aren't those who necessarily speak the best. They are those who understand their counterparts the most, right? So that is my segue. And I said, so the ability to do this is to really step into the other shoe. So the tool basically starts off by saying, often the question that is being asked isn't the question that is being heard, right? And so say you're saying, Gwen, can I please have that report by 4 p.m. on Friday? That is a very innocent question that you're asking in that, in that way, in that tonality. What get Gwen hears might be something completely different. So to give it context, I use, you know, entertainment and I use a personal example. Um, and so the story starts off with me saying, so my husband and I are walking down, you know, the, the mall, we're going shopping and we walk into Prada. And we walk into Prada and I see a handbag I really love. And now Gwen is smiling as I'm saying this because Gwen knows I love Prada. <laughs> I think we had a couple of conversations about it when we met in a room. Uh, but I walk into, the, into Prada and I pick up the bag and I turn to my husband and I say, honey, what do you think of this bag? So that is the question I'm asking. And then what do you think he's hearing? Okay. Now I have told the story a gazillion times, if there is such a thing. And I've heard a, you know, a co-facilitator of mine telling the same story as his wife is asking him this question. It often gets laughs, it, you know, people find it funny. Um, and we get some good um, sort of, you know, interaction with it. And so as you start to, to unpack the tool, um, we start to talk about what are the downsides of my husband saying yes to me buying the bag? What are the upsides of him saying no? And I started to feel that the atmosphere in the room shifted as we were joking around about things like, you know, hey, happy life, uh, happy wife, happy life. Yeah. Um, you know, if he doesn't say this to me, one of the downsides could be divorce, you know, just kind of yeah, okay. having a joke around. But I felt the atmosphere shift in the room. And we were going to break very soon after. Um, and so as they were doing the, the, the analysis to their own case study, I, I hadn't really understood what was going on. And as we went to break, um, the learning and development, so she's actually the client who was in the room, pulled me aside and said, I'm really disappointed in your facilitation. Oh, wow. And I said, okay, so help me understand what did I do wrong? And she said, you threw out every single stereotype of a marriage that is out there. And quite honestly, I don't quite understand why you would need to ask your husband for permission to buy a handbag. Mm. Wow. Mm. And so at this moment, um, I felt the amygdala hijack. I, I just thought, holy Moses, that is not what I had. And again, I think we've had this conversation before. It's a story that you've told many times and people get it like they just get this is whatever this is not the worst part of it <laughs> so she said apparently a lot of the women in the room were very offended by it you know when we went back into the room I had the choice of being honest and upfront about how did that impact people this was a leadership course by the way it wasn't a negotiation um and I wanted to have a really honest upfront conversation but before I could um, one of the gentlemen in the room said, I, that was appalling. Um, the women were very uncomfortable. I find it very hard to watch the other men in the room jump on this, let's crack jokes about, you know, X and Y, about, you know, women and their handbags. Um, and that, you know, that I was the stereotype of, of a woman who liked shopping and nice things. Sure. There was a lot for me to deal with right. in that moment. Um, 
And so as I'm experiencing this amygdala hijack, and I know both of you teach about the, the identity quake, um, in that moment, it was really, really hard for me to stay focused and productive and not want to go, are you kidding me? All I said was, this is my husband and, and whatever. And so I had started to then have to, 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 to have an honest conversation about things like, you know, um, at this point, the reason I ask my husband is because it's out of respect. I am the breadwinner. I do not need to ask him for permission. Yeah. Um, as somebody who respects the other partner in this, in this relationship, we have an agreement that any large purchases should be but you know, Max, Gwen, it just sounded like I was defending, right? Mm -hmm. Like it really sounded like I was defending. Right. Um, so that was really hard. And so I had like the night, that night, um, and I have to say, I took probably a few many drinks at the bar that evening to strategize what was gonna happen the sure. next day. Um, and I thought there's nothing I can do but turn this into a teaching point and enroll the room into Sure. How do we do that? Oh, yeah. And um, funny enough, the next day we were teaching this component on EQ, specifically around self-awareness and self-control. Uh, and I think you guys are familiar with the slide that we show around when you're experiencing the amygdala hijack, you know, that self-awareness piece to understand what's happening, the 10 deep breaths, the go to your balcony, all of those things that we have taught on a slide that you have to practice in that moment. Right. And I did. Um, and so... As a, as a room, I was really candid to them. I said, so, you know, when that was shared with me, this is what I experienced. Um, I watched my body. I, 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 I felt somatically the shallow breaths. Yeah. And so I, you know, I took the 10 deep breaths. You know, I, I was experiencing my body from, as, a, as a witness to what was going on that I was, you know, in the amygdala. Yeah. I was there emotionally at this point, very, very aware that my response was flee, flee, flee. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, we had a, te te a, a, a real teaching point about it. And actually they all stood up and clapped um, wow. at that point. Wow. Yeah. You say, wow, Max, but I tell you what, it still hurts. <laughs> it really still hurts to think about that experience, right? I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing this, right? That, that's a real share, right? We, we all have the shares that show that we're good facilitators with minor hiccups and then the ones that are real identity ones. Mm. I think something that's so interesting about negotiating is that the tool of the negotiator is the self, meaning that the best negotiators use the self for better or worse, their examples, their feelings, their discomfort, and the best facilitators can, can show what you're supposed to do when there is a hiccup, which is to say, here was a hiccup. Let's talk about it. Let's use that. So I mean, I think there's so much there. Some things I just want to dig into a little bit and take it whatever direction you like. I mean, there's so much there in terms of gender, right? There are assumptions about, well, the way you asked, it sounded like he was the breadwinner. The assumption that your husband's the breadwinner is itself um, a bias, right? So I can understand the need to defend. Um, I would love to, for our, for our listeners that, that aren't as familiar with our slides to talk about amygdala hijacking mm -hmm. and the balcony um, and then just to make it more complicated, I also just want to throw out the ladder of inference, um, mm -hmm. as a tool for us to maybe look at this and what was happening and, and how, and how maybe you used it in the moment. Yeah. I mean, I think in that moment, the first thing I was so aware of besides what was happening to me, cause that is all you can focus on in that moment, right? It's what's going on with me, my body, my, the physiological part of, of, of my being is besides the self-awareness you know this was a leadership course and this was the second time I'd met these folks and we talked about the ladder of inference and we talked about making assumptions and we talked about as you lead people right not to make assumptions about their stories and not only that we'd spend a bunch of time talking about confirmation biases that a lot of the times when we have a conclusion about a situation that is based on our own triggered responses in my mind, all of this is happening because I want to say to these people, literally, I, we have gone through this three months ago on a learning journey. Haven't yeah. you learned anything? That was my initial frustration. Yeah. And I think even as I tell the story, my narrative, I'm very careful not to make myself out to look like the victim, mm -hmm. right? Because I have to take accountability for a couple of things that yes, as I tell that story in trying to be, enter, you know, entertaining, funny, 
um, that maybe I had not really appreciated how a story like that could could trigger somebody, you know, thing. And then to your point, Max, about the, the amygdala hijack. I mean, I think just being aware about what is going on in your body as it happens, as we explain the science to people, right? Like, you know, you get the, 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 the threat to safety, survival, safety, survival, safety, survival. You stop thinking logically, you just do. And you start to think with your emotional responses. Being aware that that was happening is so powerful. Um, for someone who maybe gets nervous in negotiation and experiences identity quake, but doesn't know to call it that, like what is it that you're talking about with this identity, this quaking and this hijacking? So I think, um, you know, the first thing in sort of understanding that response is to understand that fight, flight, freeze, right? That's the first, and we, you know, for most of, uh, of us who are familiar with that, that, those are three very easy sort of somatic things to feel in your body. Like, I don't want to be there or, right. um, oh my gosh, I just don't know what to say in this moment or who does he think he is? Like, how dare he, right? And I think those three responses are your first clue. And I think that as you build up self-awareness as a negotiator or as, or as an influencer, I think it's really helpful to listen to your body because that sort of gives you the clue that you're experiencing that. So for me, I know I get like, like red around my ears. Like I don't blush, but I start to get red around my ears. I start to maybe get sweaty in the palms. So I'm very, very, very aware of what's happening to me somatically speaking. And then I think there's this piece around what do we do next? And then so what next, right? So we have this awareness, we're experiencing it. Now, when you're in a negotiation and there's, there's kind of a dual ends thing going on, what's happening for you internally, as well as this piece as you're engaging with somebody externally. And I feel like that's a lot of multitasking going on <laughs> to be truly effective. And I feel like here's where we wanna be able to get to a place to be truly, truly, effective as a, as a negotiator to be able to really speak in our internal voice, mm -hmm. right? To say, can I just pause you for a moment? So whatever you've said to me or whatever you've proposed to me, for some reason, I'm experiencing, you know, um, some strong feelings about it. And I'm not sure why. And I'd like to just take a moment. Yeah. And I think that is a very respectful thing to do to that person, because as much as we think we're really good at sort of having a poker face, it's probably going to show in the way that we're, you know, showing our body language and things that we're saying yeah. and they're going to think what is going on here what is going on with this other person yeah so I think that would be sort of my first piece of advice like like pause and then sort of you know say to the other person I need a moment here's what's going on for me I love this idea of not um lamenting that there are emotions but just making it making allowances for it to say like you know the strongest negotiators it's not that there are no reactions that it's pure stoicism, that it's pure calm charisma. It's the awareness, a smart negotiator says, you know what, I'm not, I'm like a little off right now, let me take 30 minutes, right? That's the brilliance of it, not never feeling the thing. Yeah, and to back, go back to where we started, you were talking about being authentic and genuine in the mm -hmm. room. And that's an authentic and genuine response rather than trying to either avoid or tap dance your way through it. And, I love that when you when you brought this back into the room the second day and you used it as a we have a we have a learning example right here right now that happened you know you got a you said they stood up and they clapped right and my assumption around that is because you modeled exactly what we were trying to you were trying to teach and I love the fact that you couldn't do it when it first happened I think it's important for people to know that we don't expect that in those really dramatic moments you can do this, but you can always circle back. And I have to, I have to admit that when you were telling that story and you said the client was in the room and came up to you and said what they said, I felt it in my body. Mm -hmm. I had an empathic response of, oh my gosh, I, I don't quite know what I would do in that situation. But you showed such vulnerability um, in doing that. I'm curious about, um, you said this is a story that you've told many, many times. Yeah. So you were working under the assumption that this is a-okay. Did that make it sort of doubly difficult to hear this feedback? Absolutely, absolutely. And especially to a group who I already had a rapport with, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, I already had a rapport, we had a personal relationship. I think that makes it harder 
because I do think that when you have a personal relationship with some folks in the room, it's hard not to take it personally, mm -hmm. right? And, and you almost want to say, hey, guys, you know, after that last module that we did, you said it was one of the best programs you've been to, that, you know, that, that you found it inspiring, that what was shared was great. And then to then come back to this, I think that really hurt. It like, it hurt my heart, I think, if, if I'm honest. And, and so Gwen, I think to your point, this genuine and authentic, I think in that moment as I was experiencing it and then being able to teach back or, or learn, and I, I was really honest and say, folks, I'm not teaching because in this moment I'm still processing. Yeah. Um, but here's what I did. The round of applause came because they felt that I was vulnerable, but I wasn't defensive. But even though I said to you, it felt like I was defending, I actually stop and say, I appreciate me explaining to you about my marital situation sounds like I'm defending, but it yeah. might be helpful for folks just to have a little bit more context. Yeah. Right? Of why the story doesn't feel triggering for me, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that every single person in that room has experienced bring, being in front of other people where maybe another senior leader might've called them up on something that they'd shared in a, in a presentation or everyone's experienced that right, where they've had a lot of pushback that impacted them so badly in that moment, but to watch someone productively um, journey their way through it, and then to come back the next day and say, here's what I learned, and I'm still going to probably be learning this 12 months on, right, yeah. look me up on LinkedIn, and I'll tell you, um, <laughs> I think that was what was really impactful for, for folks. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm curious to push both of you here on that, because when you're a trainer, whether you're working for a firm, um, your feedback will determine potentially your employment um, or your employability or how preferred you are for a certain engagement. And so my question to you both as people um, who, who bring energy, which is how do you think about calculating the risks of vulnerability, the risks of sharing and weigh that against the fact that some of the best teachings are uncomfortable when sometimes when people are joining a training, you know, they might rate you higher when you give them the happy-go-lucky, you're a great negotiator and keep at it. But how, how do you balance? So I guess the question is, how do you balance being a true facilitator like you were utilizing what happened in the room versus being a um, popular facilitator? I'm looking at Gwen first. <laughs> I think that's a great question. And I, and I think that there, is a, there are a couple of things going on. I think when you've been in the training room for a long time, you start to develop instincts mm -hmm. about what this particular room is open to. And, and sometimes you're wrong. You know, I, I've been wrong in the past about that. Uh, and you, you feel it out you know, as, you, as you're going. Um, one interesting thing in the research of, of stories and particularly teaching stories is the most impactful ones have some kind of emotional resonance to them. That's why we remember them because they were, we had some emotional reaction to the story. It wasn't just this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Like, I will always remember the story that Shonda just told because, you know, I had an emotional reaction to a client saying, I'm really disappointed. Uh, I have found over the years that that groups have more room for and appetite for actual genuine emotion, humor than we assume. And you know, I was I was talking to Chanda the other day, and and we were kind of joking around, but it's quite true. She mentioned IPS, which is you know, a, a, an interpersonal story that people really dig into and people bring things that sometimes when they bring them in, they don't even know that there's such an emotional resonance to them. When they're doing the exercise, they discover what's really going on underneath and they often cry. Mm -hmm. And I know this, this is kind of a trainer talky flipping kind of thing to say, but we often say it's not IPS until somebody cries. Um, and you know, I had to I had to follow a woman into a ladies' room because she left my class sobbing from doing this interpersonal exercise. Yeah. Um, at least in my experience, people come back and say that was so useful, that was so powerful. Nobody has ever come back to me and said, um, 
I'm really mad that, or I'm angry that I opened up like that. And it means that as facilitators, we have to be so careful and so delicate and so respectful of, as you were Shonda, when you, when, when you came back the second day, you were being respectful of the dynamic in the room. And I think the hardest thing sometimes is to name it. Mm. You know, to just stop and say, we're gonna stop looking at slides for the moment. I, I'd like to name what I think is going on here and help me understand if I'm at all on track. And you can see everybody's shoulders go down because everybody's thinking it, but nobody's saying it. And Gwen, what do you call that ability beyond the awareness to know and to read a room um, and to sense or to see shoulders tensed? What do you call that, that naming or that ability? I've heard it called affect labeling, that the ability to name an emotion can pacify it. But I think it's something bigger than that. And I've seen you, I've stood next to you while you've done it in the room. That's kind of what I mean by this stance, but how do you describe that, let's say to a new trainer who's trying to understand it? Curiosity. Mm -hmm. Put it out in the room is, I'm really curious about what's going on here. Cause I have a theory, yeah. and, but I'm up here with a very different perspective than all of you. Um, yeah. So I just, I'm, I'm just really curious. Beautiful. And I think to sort of add to, to Glenn, I mean, Max, to your question, you know, absolutely, I, I concur with everything that Glenn says, the ability for a trainer to stand there and say, let's stop. I don't know what's going on here, but let's talk about it. It's a very brave thing to do. And it's a very vulnerable thing to do because as a trainer, you know, you've got a bunch of slides you got to get through, you've got a content, you've got a client in a room and all of that moving pieces, but really it's all about our audience, right? It's for what do they need in this moment? And I almost think that, you know, we teach about the test of reciprocity, right? And I feel that as a trainer, if I want to invite people to be vulnerable and honest and truthful in, in, in whatever we're doing, I got to be able to put myself out there too. Yeah. And, I, and I feel that as trainers, we probably should spend just as much time as we do setting up a room for training as we do for creating a safe space for folks to share. And I feel that by them, you know, seeing us and we're leading the room, right? At the end of the day, I know we're facilitating the room, but we're leading that room too. And if we're able to talk about those things that are true to us, you know, true to our hearts and say, I found this really hard, you know, and when I was practicing law and this negotiation happened, I find it really hard to deal with these types of people. And I try not to stereotype, but this is a challenge I come. And just to be able to share that um, is probably for me key to really getting people to go away and think that was, incredible right it may not be the popular way um, but it was definitely incredible and it really impacted me and my learning I mean I this is something I think about and specifically Shonda because this was a leadership um, environment and because often in trainings negotiation and influence are under the umbrella of leadership mm -hmm. I find it so powerful and and we we talk a lot about leading by being vulnerable mm -hmm. um or leading by declining to be a stereotypical leader and to say, I don't know, what do you think? And to just be a leader of process. Um, I'm curious for either of you, Gwen or Shonda, how you're thinking about your standing in the front of the room when we know that what we're actually doing is being curious alongside the people and that way avoiding that defensiveness or positionality because we're really just standing next to them looking at this thing that we admire, which is skillful negotiation and saying, I wonder how we can get there. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, like what I always think about to answer my own question, <laughs> um, <laughs> what I always think about is when we start, when we talk about the Harvard negotiation project, when we talk about Israel-Egypt peace agreement, Iran hostage crisis, Ecuador-Peru, and South, South African apartheid, that the things we're talking about are very big. Um, and they're also hyper micro in terms of self-awareness, somatic awareness, et cetera. And I know that I'm motivated by how those small things and small skills in teams and organizations can have big trickle up effects. I'm just curious about when you're thinking about personal emotionality and personal mindset, and you're also aware of what these things can do on a larger scale, how are you 
not reconciling, but how are you keeping those things in your mind to know how big and global these things can be and also how small and personal they need to start? I think as, as an initial reaction to that question, I feel that if you're attached to any outcome, right? Like this deal has to happen or this has to happen in this deal or this person has to tell me this is, you know, this is what I want, whatever that is, right? Whether we're talking about peace support or not. I think as soon as you are attached to an outcome as a negotiator, as someone who's facilitating, um, what you're doing is you're narrowing down that, that piece that Gwen talked about. You cannot approach it with curiosity. That, that is not a curious conversation. That is me getting my way, <laughs> just dressed up differently. Right. And so I feel that, you know, often, you know, we always say this in the room, right? We can't control what the other person says. We can't control what they do. The only thing we have 100% control over is ourselves. And the moment we let that go of trying to control that person's actions or reactions to us or, or what we want an outcome out of them, I think it just makes it for a better negotiation or influence conversation or, you know, whatever that might be. And I feel, again, it's a really hard thing to cultivate, but I think also, um, you know, Max, to your point, how do we create that in a room, specifically from a trainer perspective? Um, I think you've got to accept it about yourself, right? If you're not accepting of who you are and what you're about, and you're so worried about how you're coming across in the room or worried about what someone might say or the fact that you might not be popular, you're not going to be very impactful. I don't feel, yeah. I don't feel that's very impactful. And I, I, it's interesting that you bring that up about how we open. My thought was always, we, we talk about the Harvard Negotiation Project, A, just to say this is where it came from, B, to establish some credibility around the model, mm -hmm. you know, some instant credibility. This isn't just something that my company or I came up with. And then using those really big, global, impactful negotiations, uh, you know, particularly the, the one in South Africa or Israeli negotiations. My thought was also, A, it, it establishes more credibility that this stuff really works in very difficult situations. But I often think of it too as, if this could work in this really intractable historic conflict, then my bet is that it could work on individual one-on-one -on -one difficulties because people come into the room with conflicts that they think this is unresolvable. Mm. You know, I've been going at it with this person in my department for, you know, 15 years. So I always just think that if, if this tool, these tools can work on this macro level, then it makes sense to me that, that these can be useful for you. Yeah. Now, I really, I really like that. Um, and that's usually my biggest maneuver when I have um, the guy in the room who knows everything, um, who I'm seeing you smile, I think you've met him. Um, <laughs> he might be in sales, he might not be, he is usually a he. Um, I remember one, I was, um, Gwen, I don't think we were in the same room, but I think we were both at a large life sciences company and I had someone in the room say, um, on the empathy slide, I don't need this empathy bullshit. It's work. It's not personal. Um, and I remember what I asked him, I said, you know, the Navy SEALs found that this was a worthwhile module. I'm wondering why or what you do that makes this not applicable for you. Um, of course, this is in some ways not a nice question because it's sneaky advocacy formed an inquiry. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of judgment, Max, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but this, I mean, I'm curious about your perspective because for me, and it could be because of my gendered experience, but when I get that type of energy in the room, um, sometimes, and I'm curious about your moves here, sometimes I, I do very rarely slap back, which is to say, look, I can understand if you have pushback on the model or skepticism in your scenario. Great, I'm curious about that. But when someone categorically says, yeah, I don't think this is useful. I sometimes struggle because I'm now thinking about these large peace deals. Um, and I don't know, is the move there? It's now an influence question. Like, what do you do in that moment? The very hardest thing to do is to say, 
and tell me more about why you think that this yeah. is useful because you don't know what road you're going on. Right. I love the sly overtone, undertone though of you think you're tougher than a Navy SEAL. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My frame for like dealing with that, that archetype in the room, um, I think when you're totally right that the most wonderful thing, and I, I always think of Bruce's story and work at Harvard Law, that when there's a really brilliant law student who's saying, you know what, I don't think this active listening thing works, that the thing you do is you say, oh, okay, you don't think it works. Tell me more about that. And then after they've divulged all of their thoughts, just go, oh, you see what just happened here? Um, which is that it worked. So I don't know. I, I'm always interested in, in the moves we use on skeptics. Yeah, I think so specifically to empathy. Um, you know, I've had, I, I must say, I don't have that often, probably in the last five or six years, but I remember diff, you know, difficult conversations, courses that we used to run 12 years ago, that was one piece that would always come up, like empathy, what's the point? And I think that it's, um, you know, I try in my head to demonstrate empathy in that moment mm. and to really try to acknowledge, really summarize back when I'm hearing that, you know, for a lot of folks in the room that that's not important. And, you know, we could go into a conversation around, let's explore that. But as Gwen says, you're going to open a can of worms you might not be able to put back. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think the key for me there is to really reiterate this point that, you know, often we forget as we're negotiating that before that person is in sales, procurement, legal, regulatory, whatever, first and foremost, they're human. Yeah. And we often just tend to forget the human element of negotiations, right? Um, and I want, and I usually push that back to people and say, how many times have you been told that in a negotiation? Hey, this is not personal, right? You know, knock it down by 5%. It's not personal. You know what? It feels personal to you, yeah. right? So let's unpack that and let's talk about why empathy is important. So I think that's specific to the empathy point. And Max, I've heard that so much. I think people really push back on, on, on that. Not so much now. I mean, I don't know what you, your experience are with that, but, um, that would sort of be my, my, my suggestion to, to deal with something like that. I have to say that one of the reasons I love doing trainer talks so much is because I'm reminded about good practice, right? Like now that I'm speaking and talking about it, which is kind of the ghost to show that there are no perfect trainers or negotiators, just good processes, um, that when you externalize things, I'm now evaluating myself. And that was one of my first few engagements and being like, of course that wasn't the right move. I was being positional, I was being emotional, the move absolutely, Gwen, is to be curious, which is to say, wow, not to ask sarcastically, you think you're more important than a Navy SEAL in your, in your you know, sales capacity, but to say, yeah, it sounds like this has not been effective for you in your life. I mean, I'm curious, Gwen, I'm curious what you think here. I mean, as given that a large part I would think of our identities is as trainers and an investment in the tools and believers in, in the tools, how, how do you step into the room and be open to someone saying, this is bullshit and I don't think it works? Uh, I think I had different reactions to that at different parts of my career. Mm. Um, when I was really new at this, I would often push back, you yeah. know, in a way, or I would avoid it. I would, I would try to just keep moving. Uh, you know, and I have found that that giving people space to say more, uh, they reveal things. And, you know, they'll reveal things and, and I'll say, well, what was the result of that? Or what can you imagine was the impact of that? What's interesting too, is that it's, it's kind of rare that the entire room are skeptics. Usually what we're talking about is, is the one person that is the real skeptic. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we need to be careful that the rest of the room feels, feels safe, you know, that this, this person isn't going to derail the whole day. Right. Uh, and so if you deal with somebody skillfully the first time they bring it up and you make some room for them, there's yeah. often real teaching points that, that come out of it. And you can see the rest of the room go, oh, okay because people feel tense, you know, when somebody, when somebody actually goes up against a facilitator, when somebody really pushes back, the room can feel really tense. Yeah. So a couple of skillful moves of things that we teach on, um, you know, and I, I, this is a terrible phrase, but 
oftentimes the person hangs themselves. I mean, they, what I mean is they start talking about why this won't work and they're revealing all of this information about their actually unskillful behavior that's, that hasn't had good impacts. And a great question always is, well, what can you imagine was the impact of that for the other person? Yeah. Or, you know, the person who says, when you ask them to write up a, a conversation, a two-sided conversation, I don't have any difficult conversations. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I choose, generally joke, I say, well, God bless you. Yeah. Um, think about it a different way. Are there other people who would consider that they had difficult conversations with you? Gwen is just a kinder person because when I when I hear that I'll say let me give you a difficult conversation right now right well you know I'm not talking about I mean you should see what's in my internal voice <laughs> I think a skeptic is is the perfect opportunity to show skillful behavior on our part 100%. and I will admit there was one very large group where the CEO kept going after us and going after us and going after us and saying, why would you prepare for a negotiation? I never prepare for a negotiation. <laughs> and there were 120 of his employees in the room. And you could tell that they thought he was being a jerk. Yeah. And I, I tried a skillful move, I tried a skillful move, I tried a skillful move. And then I went for a laugh and I just said, we're gonna move on now because I'm about to shoot myself in the head. <laughs> and I couldn't believe that I said it to yeah. the CEO. Yeah, but a few people clapped. I heard about that, Gwen. So you've never told me that story, but on the grapevine, I heard about it. I, I believe it was somewhere hot and sunny. You were in somewhere like Spain or somewhere, right? Oh, we were in a gorgeous spot. Yeah, um, I remember that. And so that's a story that's traveled in terms of how you dealt with that really productively. Well, you know, you try a skillful move, you try a skillful move. And this was the CEO of the company. And he was, by the way, he was making a bit of an ass of himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, his employees were, and somebody came up to me afterward and said, I don't know what he was on about because he prepares for negotiations. Uh -huh. So Gwen, actually the, the, the kind of thing that you just described here happened to me in that story that I first shared at the beginning of the podcast. So because there was one particular gentleman that had raised it right in front of the room in front of everybody about my bad behavior what had started to happen was those other six seven women who were you know very offended by my asking my husband for permission to buy a handbag they had started to shift around because in that moment and if i was to narrate this i probably looked like the victim right like i'm not saying this in terms of victim mentality but i started to look like the one that was being attacked i started yeah. to look like the one that was being unfairly singled out for for a comment and suddenly something that was hey I didn't like that yeah and that's really bad behavior and you right. know what that is an external facilitator coming into our home right this is our workplace this is our home and this is what how we show respect so each of them individually during the breaks I'm really sorry you know yeah that was bad like we didn't agree with it but that should not have happened and Gwen I'm thinking that's probably the same thing that happened to you no matter how senior the person was, that shouldn't happen, right? You are a guest in their space um, and you're learning about their corporate culture too. So, um, you know, that's a that's a big thing, I think, for people to sort of say, and that, I know that's our leader, that's our CEO, but that shouldn't have happened to you. So I experienced the same thing, that that shifts the narrative to what you were saying, that those people who, you know, sort of push back on those things, hang themselves in the end. I mean, I think it's really interesting as someone who I think is, um, I'll say, eager to learn from the more experienced people in the field um, that I'm, I, I hope I'm maturing into a space of understanding that a sharp tongue cuts your own throat. Um, absolutely. Yeah. That it's, you can be right or you can be effective. And some people, and especially, I think it's interesting, Shonda, curious what you think based on your professional background. For me, working with law students and not being a lawyer myself, I think it's particularly problematic when people, or let's just talk about the entire educational system that says, hey, can you make a good argument? Can you mm -hmm. be right in a, in a legal sense? Um, and to see how ineffective it is or how alienating a person can become because they have to be right. Okay. And right. yeah, I mean, just the question of, I'm reminded that it's not what you say, it's how. Right. Right. And I, there's a couple of thoughts that comes to me, folks. Like, so um, I think the first thing is, I mean, there's a lot of 
points of what Gwen raised, but I also think we kind of have to be okay with not everybody following what we're, we're, we're teaching mm -hmm. and be okay that we're not gonna get 100% buy into, oh my gosh, 100% of your course was amazing. Yeah. And I think we have to let go of that, right? And say, hey, I'm totally open to the fact that you may not resonate with this model, that's okay. You know, we have a bunch of other models to share with you that could really help you be more impactful in a negotiation. I think that is, for me, super key. That that comes from us, just letting that go. Because then we're able to not have to defend. It's very easy, isn't it, Gwen? <laughs> having, having to defend this model or say, Max, you know, yeah, but we use this in South Africa. <laughs> it really worked, you know, uh, really hard not to have that internal voice kind of go out like the like the cartoons that you see. So I think I think that's a really, really hard thing to do. Yeah. I think that's a great point, though, of letting go of the expectation um, that everybody is going to take this on equally and um, enthusiastically. And to remember, I mean, I've been taught that lesson many times. I have no idea what's going on with this person in the moment. There could be things going on outside of the room that I have no right. um, knowledge of. I was doing a, a, a group in Europe and it was two different companies coming together. And in the one third of the room, all these people that were sitting together in one part of the room, and it was about a hundred people in the room, their body language was absolutely frozen. They were obviously angry. They were obviously not paying attention. They were chatting with each other. And I tried a couple moves and then I just thought, no, I'm, 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 I don't know what's going on here. I'm leaving it alone. And I went to the client after, you know, at, at break and said, have I offended this part of the room? I mean, there's, there's a whole cohort here that's furious. And he said, oh no, no, it's not you. Um, this morning we told them all that we were closing their office and they could either, you know, move to a different city or they needed to look for another job. And I, I, I said, well, that would have been good information for me to know before I started this session, but it really taught me, like, it goes back to identity. Yeah. You know, I'm not a great trainer unless I can convince everybody that this is an absolutely brilliant, usable, applicable model. And we do have to let go of, of that at a certain point. It's funny, right, Gwen? The moment you let that go, it impacts your yeah. feedback. Like you just notice the feedback gets better. And because then I think you're so, so much less worried about, you know, how it's impacting people and speaking with your true authentic voice. Um, you know, you're just focused on that and say, I'm just going to say the words. I'm going to just facilitate the way I know, tell my stories, you know, facilitate conversation, not defend and just see where this goes and share some really, really deep, you know, genuine truths that I experienced myself. And that's when you notice the thing that you worry about, Max, to your point of, hey, if I don't get good feedback, I don't get work, I don't get paid, I don't get fed, which is your survival <laughs> skills, right? Because that's a narrative going on in your head. Sure. Um, you just let that go. You just let the outcome go and think, I'm just going to show up and just do my best. That's all. Mm -hmm. So I have, I have a, a concluding-ish question uh, that we, I want to talk about as long as you want to. My thought here is, I have a question that not so thinly veils my personal situation right now. And that's, in addition to the whole survival piece, how do you go about proliferating these tools when we know that when you push tools, they're not gonna be met with you know, anything but pushback and also knowing how useful and life-changing it can be in a non-cliche lifetime movie kind of way. How do we proliferate these tools when we know that a common tenant of influence is not to push anything? So I was gonna say, look, I had taught that identity tool, right? Like dealing with it, like, you know, going to the balcony, the 10 deep breaths, being somatically aware. I had taught that for 12 years. And in the 12 years, I'd experienced maybe three true identity quakes where, you know, my sense of self was being questioned in terms of survival and safety, where I really could not be productive in the moment. The denial of the situation that, you know, it was the other person's fault. They, they meant to make me feel that way. And then to exaggeration where I'm thinking this is so bad, nobody's ever gonna to wanna to hire me again. I'd only experienced that three times in my life, but I'd continued teaching that tool for a good 10 years before the situation in my, in my story had happened. And so I almost think that as we teach, we have to say to folks as well, 
sometimes the learning doesn't happen until you find yourself in that situation. And then it kind of, oh yeah, I learned about that. Like, you know, it, it almost comes to you like muscle memory as that situation presents itself. I think for a lot of people, a lot of the stuff that we teach isn't as resonant for them because they haven't experienced it, right? And so for me, um, you know, I, I, I have a preference for teaching folks that have a little bit more experience who've, you know, been through a lot of training and think I've learned a lot from those training sessions, but it's not helped me in these really, really difficult, really pressing situations. And then we teach them a model and like, I wish I knew that 20 years ago. To what extent do you think that the program on negotiation is a church and we are its disciples? <laughs> <laughs> I am like the most, I don't know, if that was the case, I would be the one handing out all the books, telling yeah. people how it changed my life. I would be like singing from gospels about it because honestly, yeah. it is life changing. Like it yeah. is, the, the, for me, the biggest, biggest thing is um, identifying that every single human I have ever come across in training, consulting, coaching, friendships, relationships, is that every single person I've ever come across has this deep desire to be seen for who they are. Yeah. And I think that the moment you realize that, mm. that that's what everyone, they want to be seen for who they are. Um, they want to be heard. Um, it's mm. so, so much more powerful. To me, that's what influences. Yeah. It's really just about understanding that other person in a way that they've never been understood before, whatever you're talking about. And I think for me, that has been life-changing, not just professionally, but personally. Yeah. Um, I'm also curious for both of you, how you practice outside of the room. And the reason that I'm asking that, because I was thinking, Shonda, as you were talking about, you know, the people who hand out the books, I realized that when I was in grad school, I would take the Davis Square stop to the Harvard stop to go to class. And um, I would talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses and practice active listening. Right? And I was a religious studies major and I'm a know-it-all and I couldn't bear hearing some of the things they were saying. And so I would, I would practice active listening. It felt fair to me because they put themselves in public. So I was interacting with them. I'm curious about ethical ways you're able to practice the skills when you're not in the room. Um, so, you know, we do that hot topics, right? In the room, right? Where we get people to take the opposite view to something you feel really strongly about can you ground yourself in a space of curiosity as this person is talking? And you know the, the examples we use is looking, a lot of our colleagues um, in the Harvard Negotiation Project are dealing with you know, terrorists and people who are saying really bad things about women and children and you have to negotiate. And so, um, and really how to truly listen. And of course there's different ways of listening as we know as coaches, but really being able to listen and stay on that other person's ladder um, I do that as a daily practice. To me, that is a daily practice, right? I mean, with your children, with your husband, you know, not to be able to jump to say, are you kidding? Like literally we've had six discussions about who's gonna put away the, the dishes in the dishwasher. Yeah. And just to be able to just listen and understand. And I think that's also a really great way of managing the triggers. Because if you're in that space of really truly listening to understand, not listening to respond as we, we would say in a room, um, that is powerful. Like, I think it really shifts people when they feel that there's a, another human who wants to hear their story, whatever that story is. Yeah. Right? Whether it's something as minor as the, the, the reasons why they couldn't put the dishwasher on or, or, or major reasons. Um, I think that for that thing, that's really powerful. And as you, as you start to think, as you start to see your relationships in your personalized shift, you start yeah. to think this really works. Mm -hmm. And this isn't just about negotiation. This is about the, the, the kind of connections I want to cultivate in life, yeah. Um, then yeah, it does become gospel. Max, I think to, to loop it back to what you're saying, it becomes gospel. It, it, you're kind of thinking, how come people don't know more of this? Yeah. Why aren't we all behaving and talking in this way? Because this is the way that we should be. It, it, feels, it feels like it should be a tenant of, of, yeah. of humankind, right? Like, yeah. Well, first of all, if we're a church, we need some good hymns. Um, <laughs> I think when I first started teaching this, I had to practice it really, really consciously. And then it became a little bit of, of muscle memory. Um, and, 
you know, I took on a, a leadership position outside of my professional world on a volunteer basis. And I had to start doing it consciously again, uh, because it, it, you know, I was in situations that I felt really strongly about and I had long-standing relationships with people that were difficult. And having to go back to basics, having to really pull myself up short and yeah. say, that was not a skillful response. Um, and I have to say, and we could do a whole, a whole podcast just on this. I've been really, really challenged with this the last couple of years with politics. Mm -hmm. I have been, it been very, very, I've been really struggling with it. And then we add on the last year where we can't see people in person. And all we're reacting to is their posts on Facebook or a news article or things that we're reading. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I have brought back some very, very unskillful practices in my own head. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really looking forward to a, a sort of a different environment politically and culturally, because I think it became cultural to just scream at each other yeah. and to really score points, yeah. you know, um, and to be able to get back to a, a more neutral stance. It's been really difficult actually for me. I, I feel like I've been very unskillful um, personally sometimes. Yeah, but I think also when from a really human element, as we're hearing somebody take a, a view that is so opposite to what we're thinking and feeling as being right from a, uh, a moral standpoint, right? And we feel it's really hard to stay in that space of listening because almost we feel like if we're listening and staying in that place of curiosity, that somehow we're giving up our perspective. Like somehow that is a, a, a passive approval of that person's perspective. And that's the thing that we fear most, right? Safety, survival. And so again, we're experiencing the amygdala hijack. We're experiencing the emotional responses. It is really, really hard. And I think very human um, for our survival as, as a species to not get into that frame of mind. It's really hard. And I think Gwen, you hit the nail on the head when you say it's a practice, but for me, it's like, there's, it's a conscious practice. Like, I want to have these conscious relationships, yeah. right? So the, the ability to do that takes that concerted effort from myself to say, me listening to this person doesn't mean I'm wrong. Doesn't mean I have to give up my perspective. Um, I can still stay in that space of curiosity. But yeah, when I hear you, it's a hard thing to do, especially in the last couple of years, right? Really hard. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, Robert Mnookin has a book called Bargaining with the Devil, just like, when do you fight? Um, which I think is a really interesting conversation. Um, I always think about the Dalai Lama leaving um, as the Chinese suppress a revolt in Tibet, um, where I think his choice, at least from what I remember, was do I stay and fight or do I flee? And he fled. And, and I think that it's, it's a tough discussion, but at what moment you say, okay, enough, I'm literally going to fight. I'll draw my line in the sand. And that's when I start thinking about like, you know, your morals, your ethics, your philosophy, and when your bat, when your batna kicks in. Um, could it ever, I mean, questions of pacifism are, um, I think, larger than the purview of our, our training, um, but I'm always thinking about that too. And that is so on point at the moment, Max, you know, when folks are talking about a position of privilege, and you know that you are, right? How do I, and I feel like you could do another podcast on that. Yeah. Right. Where, where, where is it? When do we find that balance of really listening to being curious, understanding the other person's perspective to what end? Because if you're hearing something that's that you're saying, I am that person in privilege, I could actually make a difference here. Yeah. You know, this is a time to fight. When do I do that? It's a really, I think, I think for me, that is something I'm trying to deal with right now, because as a person who's always prided myself on seeing both sides, really understanding, how do I shift behaviors that need to shift in this world? I think I, what I wanted to ask, having taken us down this, this darker path, um, either a, a final question that you're thinking about, something that you're taking away um, from today's podcast, um, or something you'd like to leave um, a listener who's presumably interested in uh, negotiation or facilitation. Um, I'll start just in that. I, I hope you understand now that I'm not joking when I say that this this talk, these talks and trainer talks are so selfish for me, which is to 
keep learning and keep developing, especially when we can't be in the room together. Um, and for me, what I'm taking away is just it, the authenticity piece, right? That even when you go to your BATNA, when you advocate for something, it has to be in line with what you really think and feel, right? Taking and drawing a line in the sand in a place that you don't deeply feel it uh, will fall flat. Um, but also that so much of this is taking a beat, breathing, being curious. And even if you're a trainer that knows, yeah, 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 we should be curious. That is totally a different knowledge or understanding to do it and requires daily practice. And so I'm, I'm very <laughs> humbled as I think back on even my advice earlier in the podcast um, in how we speak in, instead of what we're saying. Yeah, I think for me, what really came up on this podcast, just talking through things with you both. And, you know, I know Gwen is so experienced in a room um, and hearing her share some war wounds that are very similar to my own. That's been very cathartic for sure. Um, and so the piece I wanted to say was, and we're still finding out the answers, right, Gwen? Like we're still trying to, you know, navigate them. You know, we often say in a room, right? Negotiation is a process, not an event. And I almost want to put that with the singular is, you know, I am not, I'm a process, not an event. And so no matter how much of years of experience as a trainer I have, today's really kind of just cemented for me. Like, you know, when I reach the 20 years as Gwen has, you know, in, in, the, in the training field, I'm still going to be that process. I'm still going to be work in progress, right? The biggest thing I'm taking away from our talk with Shonda Gwen um, is the use of the self for the negotiator. So sometimes I think we use musical analogies um, and yeah, in a lot of ways, conversation is listening and music and rhythm and cadence and all of that. Um, but if the guitar player plays the guitar, the negotiator plays themselves and has to be aware of how they come off and their identity and what they do. And so to see Shonda not just be able to do that, but have the presence of mind to do that in a moment where it's less easy um, is exactly the, the kind of brilliant move and, and conversion of mistake um, into teaching that, that we love to hear. Yeah, it's a great point, Max. And I was really impressed with the fact that Shonda got this feedback that was A, surprising because she had used this story before and, and B, you know, it wasn't just the client, it was the group. And she knew that she was gonna get defensive. She had the presence of mind to take on board, okay, my first move is I'm gonna be really defensive. But then to be able to work through that. And most of us stop at defensive and blame the other party because they just didn't get it. And that she was able to go away, negotiate with herself, and literally have a difficult conversation with her own identity and then be able to come back and uh, instead of just ignoring it, she could have just kept going the next day to bring it into the classroom and say, let's talk about this, let's unpack this. Here's what happened for me. Because I think that the more we can teach by example of how we use this in our own lives and how difficult it is. You know, she admitted that this was really tough. This isn't just an easy technique. Uh, I think it was really powerful and she won that group over and won their respect in a, in a really profound way. And Gwen, I, I love so many things that you're saying, two of which, um, the first being that modeling the behavior is more powerful and sticky um, than saying anything, right? Like that as much as we can model the behaviors, that's where the learning comes from much more than, than just speaking them. And also, I'm not sure if we've told this story yet, but a favorite story amongst trainers is the story of an Aikido master who's demonstrating a martial art and a student runs up to them and asks the master, how is it that you never lose your balance? And the master says, I lose my balance all the time. I'm just really good at regaining it. And I think that's exactly it. Like the illusion of the perfect practitioner needs to be shattered and I'm happy to do it, which is say that it's not easy to do. We don't not have the feelings, but we plan for them. We notice them and we do something about it. That was such a great conversation with Chanda, and we hope you'll join us in our next episode when we talk to Peter Hidema, the founder and principal of Common Outlook Consulting, Inc., and an international trainer who speaks four languages, has lived in six countries on four continents. See you next time.
Guess what, friend? You've just listened to Trainer Talk, a podcast where negotiation trainers talk shop. You can listen to this podcast on every podcast platform. If you have comments or questions, you can reach out to Gwen at G-W-E-N-K-A at AOL.com or to me at Maxwell at MaxNegotiating.com. If you want to support this podcast, you can spread the word by sharing it on LinkedIn and most importantly, by tuning in. Thank you so much for joining us and happy negotiating. Mm -hmm.